0: you have your Bible, would you take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew's gospel. The fifth chapter will be uh, landing there in just a few moments. Um, as you do that, let me say uh, thank you for the um, opportunity that you have given me uh, to share into your life over the last five years. The opportunity to speak God's word to you and to advance the kingdom in your hearts, and as a church to advance God's kingdom in our community. It it has truly been a pleasure uh, to come back and to uh, serve you at First Alliance Church. Uh, First Alliance will always have a special place in my heart, as many of you know. Uh, This is my home church. I, I grew up, I was born into this church, if you will um we were uh my parents were attending on 11th and Sassafras when the church was down there and I was born at that point and and it started attending church down there with my family and uh had have walked with this church all through my my uh youth and my teen years from from our move from 11th and Sassafras to uh the building of this building here on Zimmerly Road and and remember um Remember Wednesday night ministries at Christ United Methodist Church as this property was being built, and uh, doing baptisms at the YMCA uh, again before we had the sanctuary here. Then remember moving into this this facility. We started in the gymnasium as the uh, uh, worship center. The original worship center was being built, and um, then remember spending many years worshiping as a as a teenager in the the worship center. Uh, Just up the steps and uh, I know what happens in worship centers when you're a teenager So I've got about a hundred games that you can play with the paper. That's in the pew rack in front of you All right, so if you get bored or you're looking for something to do the preacher goes long-winded Hit me up and I got a great football game that we came up with as kids You can play there now you'll get the evil eye from some people and that's okay you'll take that as a cherished memory and carry that on and those are good things, but um, it's been an honor to be here and and uh, it was an honor to um, come back and uh, in the in the old sanctuary um, to kneel at the altar there um, nineteen almost nineteen years ago eight seventeen years ago and be ordained into the Christian ministry um, at our district conference that was held here and that was a special privilege for me. To do that at my home church, and it's been, again, an, an honor to come back and to serve you, uh, and to give back to a congregation that has given so much to me in in my formative years, um, growing up. The the role models that have come through these doors uh, have meant so much to me, and uh, role models who who both in a small and big way have helped to shape both the person and the pastor. Uh, that I am today. Role models like uh, Craig Vanier and Randy Vandermark and Bob Turner and Rick Crocker leave lasting impressions on uh, my mind. And if you were fortunate enough to have grown up here, if you were fortunate enough to have grown up here and gone through the Sunday School program, um, then you were fortunate enough to have role models like Mary Brown and Emmy Bowman and Harriet Loomis and uh, Margaret Churchill and Mary Morey and Audrey Lawson, and Marilyn Thomas, and others, uh, as your Sunday school teachers and as your role models. For a long time, um, Larry Morris served as the... Teacher for the junior high boys Sunday school class. And if you were fortunate, you had Larry because, because uh, growing up here under Larry was almost like a, a rite of passage, if you will, from, from your, your junior high years into your senior high years, years. Because not only did Larry uh, teach God's word, but Larry made sure that every boy that matriculated out of his group knew how to tie a tie. And that was, that was vitally important to him, and we would spend countless hours making sure that ties were tied. Larry and Janet worshipped in the first hour, and I made sure that he approved of my tie today, so, so we're all good with that. So, The memories, though, that, that stay with you and stick with you um, are the memories of, of role models who have imparted godly wisdom into your life at just the right moment, at just the right time, in just the right way. And their memories of their, their personality and their persona and who they are in Christ that help to shape us and to to mold us as people. These men and women have been and, and continue to be role models that God has called them to be and, and asked them to be. And there's the tipping point for success. They responded to the call. They were called in their life to be a role model because they took the name Christian and in so doing they responded to that call. They stepped up in their life, they stepped up in their testimony, they stepped up in their ministry and they said, I will be that role model. I will live my life in such a way that Christ is seen in all that I do, in all that I say, and in everywhere that I go, and I will impart those godly values and principles to others. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. We're flawed people. We're broken people. We're never going to be perfect. All of us have our, all of us have our moments of failure, and all of us have our critics. We're not perfect people. We're just people who simply obeyed the call. We're not called to be perfect on this side of eternity. We're called to be faithful. We're called to listen to Christ's commands and to read about His, His, His character and His priorities. And we're called to own those and to take them on and to wear them around ourselves so that others that we encounter may see who we are as Christ followers. You see, we're all role models today. If you've taken the name Christian, if there was a day in your life when you said yes to Jesus to have Him forgive you of your sins and lead your life and you followed Him explicitly and you wore that cloak that is now called Christian and you put that on you and you take that name, you have a responsibility. You are a role model. You're a role model to those around you. You're a role model to those that you interact with, that you come across. During his um, Hall of Fame NBA career, Charles Barkley once famously stated, "I'm not a role model." He was he was responding to something that was happening in the media at the time, where he was he was uh, called out by the media for something that he had done, and and they were saying to him, in essence, because of your pop culture, pop star, athletic star status, you are a role model for the kids and the children that watch you on television. And what Charles Barkley was trying to say was, hey, just because I can dunk a basketball, that doesn't make me a role model. He didn't want to own that. He didn't want to own that identity. That's a dangerous thing for us, for those of us who call ourselves Christian, if we buy into that mentality. Because we have taken on the name of Christ. And if we think that being a role model is not something that I want to be a part of, if we think that being a role model is for somebody else to do in some other time, and some other place, we live a very dangerous spiritual life. If we believe that all I, hey, all I want to do is worship God, I'll show up to church, I'll give my tithe, I'll sing the songs, I'll read the Scriptures when I'm told to read them, and then I want to walk out the door and live my own life. I don't want to be a role model. I just want to worship. I just want to know God on Sundays. I don't want to be that role model that we're talking about. Then that's a very dangerous lie that we've bought into because it takes more. We don't understand then. The name that we've taken on and the responsibility that comes with it. For we are all, by virtue of our name, Christian. We are all role models. In the Gospel of John, there's this great motif that John uh, builds as he writes his Gospel there's this motif of light versus darkness. And from the very beginning, in the introductory comments of the Gospel of John, as he writes, John, John presents this motif that will then be woven throughout different threads of chapters and stories that go on in the rest of his Gospel. He opens his Gospel by saying this in John chapter 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's referring to John the Baptist. This isn't John the author of the gospel. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of a natural descent, or nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And there it is as John opens his gospel, this this motif, this picture of light versus darkness, this idea of the light of Christ descending out of heaven and invading a human culture that is filled with darkness that's filled with questions, that's filled with doubts, that's filled with disbelief, that's filled with misunderstanding of who God is and who God wants to be. Here is John saying and showing the light versus the darkness and how the light comes to penetrate that darkness. This is the story of the gospel. In one paragraph, this is the story of the gospel played out for us. Later on in John's Gospel, in John chapter 3, John writes what, what will become the most famous Bible passage of all time. You know it, don't you? John 3.16. If you've grown up the church, in the church, we all know this. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's this idea. That famous passage comes from, my Sunday school teachers would be proud now, I was able to quote that. But that comment, that phrase, that sentence, that verse, which was Jesus speaking at it at the time, comes from an encounter. If we go back and look at John chapter 3, verse 1, an encounter with a man named Nicodemus. In John 3, 1, it says this, Now there was a Pharisee, A man named Nicodemus who was a member of the ruling Jewish council. Nicodemus was a religious man. He was a highly regarded religious person. He was a ruler of their times. He knew what the Old Testament said. He knew what the laws of God were. He understood how, how religion worked at the time. He understood everything about the Old Testament and how God had guided his people. There was absolutely no question that Nicodemus knew the Scriptures. In fact, Nicodemus wasn't just part of the Jewish ruling council. He was a Pharisee. At that time, the Pharisees were a sect of the religion, of the Jewish religion, that were what we would call a far right-wing conservative sect. So much so that they added laws to God's law to be followed. They were saying, in a sense, you know, it's not enough what God has given. We're going to give you some more laws to follow, and the people that were under that kind of of tutelage and oppression, really, follow, who were following the Pharisees, would would follow their command and follow their instruction. Jesus would come and as we read the New Testament Jesus would come and just rail against the Pharisees because they were ignoring the commands of God and the people were holding on to the truth to the commands of men that's Mark chapter 7 I believe and and Jesus would just say it's not about that it's about the what God has already said what God has already done and so this is who Nicodemus is he has all the information Nicodemus knows all the law and he comes to Jesus and he says this, verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. He's already three steps ahead of the other Pharisees. He already recognizes who Jesus is. And he says, for no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And here's Nicodemus' question. How can someone be born when they're old? How can someone be born again? I don't understand what you're telling me. And what was interesting is how John depicts Nicodemus coming to Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, it wasn't just about what time it was on his watch. It wasn't about that the sun had already set and now Nicodemus was going to Jesus and it was night time. It wasn't just that Nicodemus didn't want to be seen by the other Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders as going to Christ and asking him questions of clarification. It wasn't just about the time of day. It was also about, as John's motif is woven through, it was about the darkness of Nicodemus' heart. It was about his heart condition, his soul. He came to Jesus at night, in the middle of his darkness, in the middle of his doubt, in the middle of his questions, in the darkest moment of his spiritual light. Nicodemus was in darkness, and he came to Jesus, who was the light, to find the answer and to find the truth. Jesus, John continues to weave this idea of light versus darkness and how the light can dissipate the darkness and bring truth and revelation to the hearts of people. And it's from that encounter in the middle of Nicodemus's darkness that the most famous Bible passage of all time that we've all just quoted that Jesus sets forth. This is how you're born again. And in that moment, light shone in the darkness. I wonder how many people, how many people do we know that are walking around in the middle of their own darkness? How many people do we know that are walking around in the middle of their own doubts, in the middle of their own disbelief, in the middle of their own pain, in the middle of their own hurt and confusion? And are looking for answers. How many people do we know? I wonder how many people cross our paths daily that are in the middle of their own darkness and they can't even see what is happening in their life. They have questions that they need answered. And they need to understand the truth. It is, at, it is the midnight of their soul. And they're trying to find the right answer. Some of, some of our friends who cross our path are living under a cloud of darkness they're feeling like a failure and they're feeling like they're living without any kind of true hope. but here's what I know from studying the scriptures. God has a plan. God has a plan to reach the masses who are in the middle of darkness. He has a designed plan to have light shine in the darkest places God has a plan. Isn't that refreshing? Isn't it refreshing to know that God has a plan to reach the into the darkness? You look at Matthew chapter 5. Turn there now. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus begins to outline His plan. God's plan to reach into the darkness of people. Matthew chapter 5 is really a, a kind of Manifesto, if you will, on how to live the Christian life. Matthew chapter five is what we have, have come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. It comprises it's it's a one it's Jesus teaching in one setting, and it and it comprises all of Matthew five, chapter six, and chapter seven. It's a it's a huge section of teaching that Jesus does in one sitting at one time in front of one group of people, and as he teaches this, as he shares this truth, it becomes for us a guide to Christian living. This is how we, who take the name Christ, are to live in the world that that is around us. This is how we are to interact. This is how we are to uh, uh, live with each other. This is how we are to to represent the name of Jesus. Biblical scholar R.T. France writes that this is indeed uh, serves as a guide to life but only for those who are committed to the kingdom. And even they will find its reach that its reach exceeds their grasp. It's a hard thing that Jesus is saying. We want to live in the kingdom of God. Jesus says some very hard things that we're going to reach for, and sometimes we're going to make it, and sometimes we're not, because that's just the reality of our humanness. And R.T. France continues to say that this is where forgiveness and grace of God comes in to work alongside of and not diminish the holiness and the righteousness of God. As Jesus shares these, these truths and this passage, He's showing God's grace and forgiveness that works right alongside His holiness. And it works together. The, the word picture that Matthew uses is that of the kingdom. The kingdom of God. See, Matthew was writing to a Jewish people. A Jewish people who were looking for the Messiah, the Isaiah passage that was read for us in worship. They were looking for a Messiah, a Savior, who would come and redeem their people from the oppression that they were under. They wanted wanted set free from the kingdom of Rome, and they wanted set free unto God's kingdom. And that's who they were looking for. And Matthew writes, using this kingdom mentality and this kingdom mindset, and he says, he says that Jesus came and in essence was saying, if you want to live in the kingdom, you want to make the name Christian, if you want to be a Christ follower, this is how you are to live. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now before we move too quickly past this this opening phrase, I think it's very interesting how Jesus saw the crowds and then decided it was time to speak. He had been doing a lot of teaching and a lot of healing in in towns and villages. As we read in Matthew, uh, the the chapters prior to Matthew 5, he had been already exercising his ministry. And that's what got the buzz going around town. And when he reached this part of the community, the people continued to follow him. And the people continued to come in mass to see who he was and to hear his teachings. A couple weeks ago, I was preparing a chapel event, and I was using this passage, and it struck me. I've probably read this passage a hundred different times, and it just struck me again in that, in that moment, that first verse, when Jesus saw the crowd, that's when He went up and sat down to teach. When He looked out and He saw the masses of people that were gathering around Him when He saw all of the villagers come who, who were walking in the middle of their own darkness, in the middle of their own disbelief, in the middle of their own doubt, who were carrying their own questions, who had a lot of, of, of personal issues to work out and to deal with, when Jesus saw the hurt and the pain, when Jesus saw the crowd, He decided to sit down and to teach. And it says that... that he went up on a mountainside and sat down, which is a position of authority when one goes to teach in the Jewish culture. And it says, His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. What's interesting is, as we understand the, 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 the passage here, Jesus began to teach the disciples. He wasn't teaching the crowd. It was with the crowd in mind, all of their hurt, all of their pain, all of the darkness that they were walking in, He took the four disciples at that time that He had gathered, and He sat them down. And with the, with the crowd in the backdrop, He sat and He spoke to the disciples, This is how you live in the kingdom with people broken and hurting all around you, when you take the name Christian, this is what you need to know, because this is the hope of the nations. This is how you are to live. His teaching was specific to the disciples that were gathered, because He then taps the disciples on the shoulder, and He says, Turn around and look. Now you reach the masses. He said, if you want to live in the kingdom, if you want to follow me, if you want to take the name Christian, then sit down, I want to teach you something. And he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And there it is. There's God's plan to spread the message of redemption, the message of Christ's redemption to the nations. There's God's plan. You four, reach the masses. The plan is this. He taps us on the shoulders as followers of Christ, and he says, it's your job to shine into the world, to shine into the darkness. With the crowds gathered, seeing their hurt and the darkness that they walk in, Jesus sat down with four of His disciples who were gathered at that time, and He looks straight at them and He says, You are the light of the world. Go reach them. As I sit and think about that, He says that that the way we're going to reach these people the way that we're going to reach the masses, the way that we're going to make an impact on their spirit, the way that people who are, who are looking for hope and peace and fulfillment and the way that they will find the kingdom is through your example, through your testimony, through your witness and the light of Christ shining in you and in me. For those who call ourselves Christian, we've been called, we've been tapped on the shoulder, we've been turned around to see the masses, and we've been said, we've been told you, you're the light of the world. Now go get them." But to be honest with you, there's a part of me that reads this and thinks through that that goes. Now, God, what are you thinking here? You have taken a holy message. The redemption of mankind, taking a divorced people spiritually from God, reuniting them together with God through Jesus Christ. We just celebrated this last week. Through what Christ has done on the cross, you've taken that treasured message and you've put it in the hearts and the hands of broken and fallen people. Why in the world would you do that? It's not as though he didn't realize that we would mess things up. I mean, to me, it looks kind of risky. It looks a little risky for a holy God to take a treasured message and put it in the hands of broken, dirty, frail people. I mean, we screw up all the time, don't we? We say things we shouldn't say. We act in ways we shouldn't act. We respond in ways that we shouldn't respond. I mean, we do. We have the name Christian. Most of us who, who call ourselves uh, that, we take that name. We want to live for God. We want to live on Mark. We want to live on target. We're trying our best. But come on. I mean, really, how many of us are 9 out of 10 every week? Are you batting 900? we got one down here. we got 9 out of 10 one week. I don't know. Maybe on a good week, 7 out of 10. I don't know. Baseball, you're 7 out of 10. You're a superstar. I don't know. The reality is we screw it up. We hurt people. We take this message and we twist it and we distort it because just because we're human. To me that's a risky venture. But you know what? Jesus knew that. Because one of the four disciples that was sitting there that day was Peter. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you know a little bit about Peter. First of all, there are moments and there are times when Peter is absolutely brilliant, where Peter makes comments and makes statements that are are theologically foundational statements that are still debated today. Peter at one point said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, on that profession, I will build my church. Peter, you've got it. And then the ver- there are moments when Peter's an idiot. I don't mean to be harsh, but read the Gospels. In that con- in that instance that I just shared with you, Peter one second later makes a comment, and Jesus then looks at him and goes, "Get behind me, Satan." I mean, Peter is like one end of the spectrum to the other. This this uh, we just felt, like I said, we just celebrated the Easter season. What did Peter do? What did Jesus say Peter would do? Peter he told Peter, "You're going to deny me three times tonight." And Peter said, no way, not me. And what happened? Three times. Peter, in his, in his rage, in, 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 his, in, in his goal and his desire to protect Christ from being arrested on the night he was betrayed, lopped off the ear of a guard. And, uh, can you just see Jesus? Oh, Peter. Picking up the guy's ear, healing the guard. It's in the Scriptures. He healed the guard. This is not how we live in the kingdom This is not how we act. So Jesus knew he was entrusting this message to broken and failed people. But I think he thought it was worth the risk. I think that he thought that the exponential value of the kingdom is worth the risk of putting it into the hands of into finite hands and hearts and souls. And I think it's worth the risk because of the very fact that we as people have a multiplied effect on the people that we can reach. Because if I can reach one person, that one person can reach two, and those two can reach four, and those four can reach 16. And there's a multiplied effect of how the gospel message is shared and put out into the lives of other people. And it's a, and it's a, a message message of credibility. Because you can't argue with my story. You can't argue with how God invaded my life and how I came to understand who He was and I changed from what I was to to what I am now because of Christ. You can't argue with my story. I can't argue with your story. I can't argue with you that when you tell me what your life was like and then there's a moment where you met Christ and your life was completely changed. I can't argue with that because I can see the results of a changed life. I can see how God has has taken you and molded you and transformed you and fixed you and, and healed you and brought you hope and peace and comfort. And I can see how God does that. I can't argue with your story. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well. She's a prostitute. She's got a checkered past. And Jesus takes her her past and redeems it. And she believes. And she goes back to her town and she tells the town, I met this guy named Jesus and he changed my life. In John chapter 5, there's a paralytic who's, who's laying at a pool of water. And as the story is related at that time, the angel would come and stir the pool, and the first one in gets healed. And the paralytic, who sat at the pool day after day after day after day, tried to get in the pool and couldn't make it. And Jesus walks by one day, and He says, What do you want? You want to be healed? You're healed. Get up. And the man stands up, and he goes back to his town, and the people are like, What in the world happened? All I've ever known of you is your brokenness. All I've ever known of you is living in your darkness. And now you've been healed. In John chapter chapter 9, there's a story of a blind man. Blind from birth is what it says. Blind from birth. And um, so obviously everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew his story. That's Tony, the blind guy. He was born that way. And one day Jesus came to town and he spit on some dirt and made some mud and put it on his eyes and wiped it away. And all of a sudden the blind man could see. Everybody knew who he was before, that this guy lived in darkness. He now had an encounter with Jesus who is the light of the world and his eyes were opened and now he would live the rest of his life seeing he goes back to his village, and they try to figure out, hey, what happened? And the guy's like, look, I don't know. Jesus spit in the dirt, put it on my eyes, now I see. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And the people are like, come on, man, what, what really happened? And they pushed him, and they pushed him. And, and, and the guy finally said, look, I, I can imagine he was a little agitated at the time. And he said, look, this is what I know. Once I was blind, I met Jesus, and now I see. I got nothing else for you. If you want more than that, you got to go talk to him. I don't have the theology, I don't have the training, I don't have the understand, I don't have all the answers. All I know is this. My story is this. He touched me and I'm healed. He invaded my darkness and light now shines from my eyes. I don't know how he does it. He did it. That's my story. And you can't argue with it. I think when you take those two pieces, you take the power of one's story and the propensity of us to to live in community with other people and be able to share those stories, as broken and as flawed as we are, the power of what Christ can do is magnified. And it reaches the masses. That was His plan. That He would use us to tell his story so if it's in our hands what does this what does this shining look like what does it look like to shine our light well the rest of the sermon on the mount chapter 5 and 6 and 7 is a pretty good example of how we're supposed to live shining our light looks like taking on the character and the priorities of Christ and owning them and living them out in everyday living. And and, uh, 5, 6, and 7 tells us how to do that. And then you've got the rest of Matthew that Jesus is teaching. And you've got Mark and Luke and John, the Gospels of of Jesus' life. And he's pretty clear on, on how we should be living our life. And then you've got the history of the church in the book of acts and then you've got paul writing his epistles and, and peter writing his letters and you've got um acts you got romans and galatians and ephesians and you know if you ever want to know how the church should work together when it's not working real well you got to read corinthians because that's what that's all about and then if somebody tells you you're supposed to add something to salvation like like you're supposed to believe in christ and do something else well wait time out paul addressed that in galatians we can read that right there because i know that my light shines By living like this. It's not like it's a mystery. It's not like it's unclear. It's not like I don't know where to turn. Those who are in the crowd, living in darkness, living in the middle of midnight of their soul, they don't know where to turn. Those of us who have taken the name Christian, those of us who have taken the name Christ, we are the light of the world. We have it right here. It's pretty plain. And that is the hope that we get to share to the world that is hurting. But maybe we don't shine our light because we don't, we don't want to. I'm all, I'm all good with save my sins and I'm secure for heaven, but you know what, I just want to go to church and then go home. You know, You know, there's, I don't know, fishing to do that weekend, right? Fishing weekend. There's cars that go in circles that I got to go home and watch. I'm just saying, I'm not, right? Cuz I got a football team every fall that I'm busting home to, right? Find it on Direct TV and Maybe we just don't want to. Uh, maybe we just don't want to take the responsibility to actually live like a Christian. Maybe some of us don't know. And I'm being honest about that. Maybe we just don't know, but maybe we just never opened the Scriptures and studied and understood. And there's such an illuminating effect when we read the Scriptures. It's like we read it and God goes, Ah, I got it. Now I get it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life to show you the truth. I don't don't know... Why we don't, but but the command is, is pretty clear that that we are the light of the world. This is how we're supposed to live towards those who are outside the faith. This is how we're supposed to live with each other who are Christians. This is how we're supposed to act as a church. And this is how we're supposed to work and, and as as employees at our jobs. And this is how we're supposed to act as employers who employ other people. I mean, it's all in there. It's all in God's Word. This is how we're supposed to honor... Honor people as neighbors and as family members. This is how we're supposed to take care of the widows and the orphans and the poor that are among us. And it's all there. When we live according to the character and the priorities of Christ, when we live that out, then we're shining our light into the world. You see, this shining of our light is is active. It's not passive. We must be aware of the darkness that is around us, and we must be aware of how we are living in response to that darkness as we carry the name Christian. We need to be aware of how we live. Tulian Chavision, who is the grandson of Billy Graham and is currently the senior pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church where uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy served for a number of years. He was being interviewed a couple of years ago for a book that he had written that was coming out at the time. And he said this about Christians who were engaging their culture. He said, when you study church history, what you discover is that the church has always served the world best when it has been most countercultural, when it has been most different from the world. I'm not talking about curling up in our holy huddles waiting for the rapture to come. I'm talking about full-blown cultural engagement. But it's the way we engage culture that I'm really, really addressing. It's the way we engage culture. It's not about going away and resisting our communities and resisting our neighborhoods and resisting our governments and stepping aside. It's about full-blown engagement. It's about taking that name Christian and stepping into the marketplace and stepping into our neighborhoods and stepping into our schools and saying, I am going to live my life on purpose. I'm going to live my life to shine the character and the priorities of Christ. Not in a way that demeans people. Not in a way that cuts people down. Not in a way that hurts other people. But in a way that honors them and respects them at the same time holding on to the holiness and the truth of God. I'm going to learn to live in that balance and live in that tension in a world that is dark and blind because we have hope. It's about full on engagement. That's how our light shines. That's how people know that there's a difference. That's how people know that there's hope. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 5, A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Notice the dual responsibility first of the the corporate gathering of the church. A town, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Multiple individual units and homes shining their light in their communities, coming together as a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Have you ever flown at night? Have you ever been in an airplane coming over over the country, and and, and when you're in the middle of of America, it's kind of dark, pitch black, everything. But then in the distance, you see a cluster of lights. And as you get closer, the cluster becomes bigger and bigger, and you see it's a town, it's a village, it's a city. Maybe it's a, a major metropolitan area. The city cannot be hidden in the middle of the darkness as its light shines out. And Jesus speaks to the disciples in a very poignant way, and He says, collectively, we have to do this. There is a corporate call. We, as the church, need to shine our light into the community. There is a collective glow and impact that, that the church makes together and should be known for. The strength of the power, the resolve, the synergy that should come from the local church as it bands together to shine into the darkness. Into communities, we inspire them. Neighborhoods become safe havens. Schools become stronger. Local governments are influenced, and hundreds of hungry people every month are fed through a food pantry. Dozens of children can have new backpacks and school supplies, and the homeless have meals and clothing because the church is coming together as a corporate unit shining the light of Christ. A city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. And it can't be hidden because we as individuals play our respective roles together. We allow who Christ is to be reflected in us and and through us. R.T. France writes again, that this, shining our light, is about the effect which the life of the disciples must have on those around them. The job description of a disciple is not fulfilled by merely private, personal holiness, but includes the witness of public exposure. So instead of hiding our light, which is utterly absurd... Jesus goes on to say, put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. These good deeds, well, Jesus goes on and He talks about He just talked about the Beatitudes. He's going to talk about how to live together. He's going to talk about how to live as a Christ follower. The good deeds are not are not apart from it. we. It, we have no excuse. The good deeds are there. Maybe our light isn't shining because we're not practicing good Christian deeds. Maybe we take the name Christian and then we go and live and act however we please. That's that's taking our light and and putting a bowl on top of it. That's not shining as a city. The goal is never to have somebody look at us and say, I want to be like him. I want to be like her. The goal is always to have people look at our good deeds and say, I want to know that God. It's to glorify the Father. We live a life of good deeds to shine out the light into the darkness so that people would glorify the Father. As I conclude this, I'm well aware that this is one of the last times I'll speak with you in this manner. And so I want to ask this question. Who's part of the next generation to carry the light? Who's going to be part of that next generation of role models to shine their light into a dark world? Where corporately, as a church, people come together and they say, I had Larry Morris, I had Harriet Loomis, I had Mary Brown and Margaret Churchill. Will they say your name? Will someone utter your name, not because of who you are, but because of your good deeds, you reflected the Father? Who's part of the next generation to shine their light in this dark world? As our worship team comes to, to lead us in just a reflective song, how will you let your light shine? What what has God been saying to you this morning about how how we live in our community and how we live in our schools and, and how we live in our marketplaces? What kind of what's your bowl? What have you been using to hide the light that Christ has given you? If you are, is it time to remove it, put it on a lampstand and let everybody to see? Regardless of how people will respond to you, you, you're choosing maybe for the first time today and maybe for the first time in a long time, you're choosing, I'm going to let my light shine. I'm going to live according to the character and the priorities of Christ, no matter the cost. I know I'm going to fail. I know I'm going to screw it up. We get that. We understand it. The bottom line is this. Jesus has tapped us on the shoulder. And he says, It's up to you. As they sing, if, if, if it's in your practice of faith to, to respond to a, uh, an altar, then you can come and pray. But have that conversation with God. How am I to let my light shine?